Welcome back to the Happy Saver podcast. I'm Ruth, a personal finance blogger right here in Aotearoa. And in this podcast, I chat with a diverse bunch of people and I learn their story and I condense it down as best I can so that you can hear helpful, relatable stories from Kiwis who are sharing their experiences, their tips and point of view on personal finance right here in New Zealand. So let's crack on. Today I have the pleasure of sharing the story behind how Tony and his wife Karen came to create a net worth of $2.8 million and retire aged 49 and 54 respectively. Now that I have your attention, you might also be interested to know that they own one home and have a large retirement fund, which they built from always investing a portion of their take-home pay, around about 10%, from their 20-plus year careers in the New Zealand police. Despite their success, there are still many unknowns as they now try to work out how to structure their money to support them during their long and adventurous retirement. This episode shows how steady saving in a retirement scheme can build a substantial nest egg and I think that it's going to be particularly useful to those who are interested in retiring one day, which by my reckoning is everyone. But before I go further, I have a quick message from Pocketsmith, today's sponsor, and as luck would have it, they are also celebrating their 15th birthday this week too. So happy birthday to the team at Pocketsmith. Are you busy? I'm busy. Everyone's busy these days. That was one of the main reasons why I stopped tracking my income and expenses by hand and switched to Pocketsmith instead. I took a bit of time to learn how it all works and now 99% of the work is done for me. I use Pocketsmith to track my household's multiple income streams plus our random assortment of weekly, monthly and annual expenses. Whenever I can, I look to automate and optimise household systems beyond simple budgeting. A fun fact, if you are one of the 88% of Kiwis who invest, Pocketsmith also connects with most KiwiSaver providers, investment platform Sharesies, and it lets you integrate with your ShareSite investment portfolio. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. Now, a word of warning to all of those who email me, you might just end up on my podcast. Tony had sent me an email with some brief background information on his and Karen's path to early retirement, and he was asking for information on how others might structure their money after they retire. He felt that there was a lot of information available leading up to retirement, but less available after the fact. He and his wife have pieced together their very own financial plan and you might be able to pull something out of their story to use in your own journey to retirement. Even though they are fully work optional now, they still think they have so much to learn. And that email led us to picking up the phone in May for a more in-depth dig into how it came to be that this couple hung up their gun holsters at the start of 2023, moved to Golden Bay at the top of the South Island, and shifted into a life of volunteering in their community and creating epic adventures of their own. First though, let's backtrack a bit. Tony moved around Aotearoa in his younger years, spending time when he was very young on the Kapiti Coast and then the Blenheim region. His parents both worked except when he and his two siblings were young, when his mum stayed at home with them. He doesn't recall money talk at home or getting taught about money, apart from the fact that there wasn't necessarily ever much of it about. And he recalls a childhood of Lego and Monopoly and a family that was always active, out and about fishing and camping. 
and he wonders if his more thrifty upbringing has a part to play in why he is so thrifty as an adult. After their move to Blenheim and when he was aged about eight, his parents separated, so after that he was a bit nomadic as he moved between his mum in Blenheim and his dad in Levin, and plus he spent some time living with his grandparents. While his parents both went on to live their own lives and both eventually became financially stable, he talks to his mum a little about money and her future plans, but to this day they don't dig into the money details too much. He finished school halfway through the sixth form, which is year 12, and he got an apprenticeship as a baker, although his ultimate goal was to join the New Zealand police. At about the age of 19, he spoke to a serving police officer who gave him the pretty good advice to, quote, go away and wake up in the gutter a few times, by which he meant go out and get some real-life experience under his belt and then think about joining the police. So that's exactly what he did, learned a bit more about how the world works while continuing his baking career until the age of 27 when he finally joined the police. Once in, he thought that would be his forever job, and his intention was to work until the age of 65. However, best laid plans change, and in 2023, after serving 22 years, he realised that this job has a life expectancy, and that stress and burnout are very real factors, so he retired from paid work aged 49 instead of 65. But he didn't retire alone, his wife Karen quit work too. And on the morning that we spoke, she was out doing some conservation work in their community, so I didn't get the chance to speak with her, but Tony filled me in a little. He said that she came from a wholesome apple pie family. Her parents moved over from England to Whanganui with her older sister, where Karen was later born, and her family life was stable. Her parents are still together, and her mum was a stay-at-home parent with a bit of a part-time job, while her dad worked as a mechanic. So a traditional stable family, he explained, which ironically she couldn't wait to get out of. She left home as soon as she could to begin work as an accountant's assistant and then on to join the Air Force, where she stayed for about 10 years. And because Aotearoa is a teeny tiny place, I put two and two together and worked out that she served at the same time as my sister. So after the Air Force, she embarked on a bit of travelling and odd job work before she joined the police at the age of about 33. And after 21 years in, she has also recently retired in 2023. These two met about 13 years ago while both serving in the police, so prior to meeting, they had each built up their own life experiences. When Tony was young, he was conscious of getting ahead financially for the good of his future, and he had the thought in his mind to become a millionaire by the time he was 30, but never really had any idea how to achieve that goal. In his teenage years, he made a tentative start in saving money in an investment that his grandparents helped him to choose. That investment didn't quite work out, but it still taught him something, and it added a little bit of knowledge as he tried to work this money stuff out for himself. And it showed that he was clearly able to prioritise saving, because when he did hit the workforce, even on his tiny wage of $4.50 as an apprentice baker, which was a low amount even back then, he was still saving money. When I hear things like this, I am both pleased and a little dismayed for Tony. I'm pleased that his tipuna was clearly trying to help him invest for his future, but dismayed that for whatever reason the investment choice was wrong and therefore it didn't stick. These days there are so many good options out there to get our tamariki started on a long-term investment pathway and I encourage parents, grandparents and caregivers to seek them out and educate kids early in life. Now, Tony certainly took the cop's advice of living life a little, 
when he got married at 20 and was separated by 21. Talk about failing fast. He said it felt like a good idea at the time, but you live and learn. And that year was also his first step into property as they purchased a one-bedroom house on a big section for $80,000 up in Waikanae. For the deposit, they used the money they'd both saved from their paychecks, plus they borrowed $2,000 from his grandparents. When he and his wife separated, he bought her out of the house, only to sell it again a few years later when he moved south to Blenheim, coming out with, wait for it, about two grand in equity. Even though it was short-lived, he learned a lot about how to manage money and pay a mortgage, and he chalks the experience up as a step in the right direction. Once again, he gained a little bit of knowledge about money. At the same time as he was settling down, all his mates were taking off and heading overseas for their OEs. That was never on his agenda, and he couldn't understand how they could afford to do that and still get ahead financially. Instead, he was planning to get ahead financially early in life and then do that fun stuff later, which as it turns out is exactly what he is doing. It's not the way he looks at it now though, and there was a hint of regret there that he didn't take that path. In Blenheim, he met a new partner and they bought a house together. And in the early 2000s, their next move was to sell that property and buy a lifestyle block and build a house, which worked out well for them, he said, because the housing market went up during that time, which it had not done for his other property. They paid about 250000 and they sold it in 2005 to move down to the West Coast so he could take up a policing role. And they sold it for $565,000, coming out with about $300,000, which they put in term deposits and on-call savings accounts. So that was a big step in the right direction to grow their net worth. They moved into police housing for the next three years, in areas that are harder to attract police to, or the towns are smaller and the accommodation options are more limited, there will often be police housing and it's very cheap to rent as a result because if it wasn't cheap, well, nobody would go there. So while he was policing, his partner was working in more minimum wage jobs in local businesses because work is sometimes harder to come by in smaller towns. But they basically lived off her wage and all of his money went into their savings accounts. He was also contributing the compulsory 7.5% of his pay into his police superannuation accounts, plus he voluntarily added another 2.5%, so a total of 10% of his wage going into long-term investments. He told me that the super scheme for the police is part of their total remuneration, not in addition to, and this investment was just building in the background year upon year, and it was an investment that was more or less forgotten about because he was so used to living on his remaining income. Now, when I say those numbers about what he was contributing, they might be slightly out, but I think the gist to take away is that he was saving more than what we typically save in our KiwiSaver these days, which is starting at 3%. Now, I asked Tony who gave him the advice to overpay into his pension. No idea was the answer. He did know about how compounding worked and a little about managed funds, but it was more likely from the police association coming to talk to them while they were at police college about their retirement scheme and various options. He did recall keeping a cool head during various share market drops over the years, while colleagues were stressing out about the value of their funds dropping. And once again, that small learning about staying the course, it just added to the knowledge that he has today. And in the back of his mind, he knew that retirement at 65 was still many years away, so he could ride the ups and downs of the market during those years. They went on to build a house in Hokitika at the cost of about half a million dollars, taking on a mortgage to do it. 
Now that house is one he now puts down as one of his poorer financial decisions. During their time in the house, they once again made paying off the mortgage a priority, but when, after 13 years, his relationship ended, instead of selling it, he once again bought his partner out of the house, and to do so, he had to take on a mortgage again. He remembers a few weeks of living pretty close to the wire financially, as he was juggling income, mortgage payments, and settling up financially with his ex-partner, and at one point, he was down to just $16 in his bank account as he impatiently waited for his next paycheck to come in, and he spent that fortnight eating at his mate's place as he couldn't afford food that week. But once this transition period was over, money was back in the bank again and things leveled out. Now you might have noticed that in each relationship, they just combined finances early on. Whatever money either made, no matter the amount, it was considered their money. And I asked how the separation went and whether they had a relationship agreement in place in regards to how assets, etc. would be divided. Well, he said the breakup was emotionally fraught, but financially amicable. They simply split everything down the middle and moved on with their lives. A year or two after his separation, Tony accepted a promotion and he moved back up to the North Island again, this time to Manawatu. He rented out his Hokitika house and moved back into police housing. He didn't want to sell his West Coast property because the value of it had not increased during all the years he had owned it. He did finally sell it a few years later for about $50,000 less than what he originally paid. He had paid enough of the mortgage off that he walked away with a big chunk of equity, but it just proves a point that houses are not always the cash cows that people think they are. He recently had a look at the value of that house actually, and it has still barely gone up in price due to supply probably meeting demand in that part of the country. He bought a home in Manawatu for $100,000, knowing that it needed a lot of work to probably the same value. Everything needed doing, he said. He also met Karen around this time, as both of them were policing in the area, and she stopped in for a coffee one day. Her first look at how her future husband lived was clearly not enough to scare her off, as she surveyed his kayak hanging in the kitchen because there was nowhere else to store it, the kitchen bench being held up with a bit of wood, ruined carpet, and a desperate need for a new roof over his whare. He recalls her standing there shaking her head. Shortly after becoming a couple, he actually talked her into spending her long weekend re-roofing his house. So that's a woman worth holding on to if you ask me. That cheap house meant he didn't have a lot of debt, and it also gave him a lot of projects to do to keep him busy in a small town, so it served a purpose, he said. And now that they were a couple, I asked about Karen's life before meeting him. And once again, it's a shame she was busy doing good deeds on the day we spoke. And I hope when she hears this, that Tony did a sound enough job explaining her situation. She had also bought a house with a partner. And when the relationship ended, she bought him out of his portion of the home. Interestingly, when they revalued the house so that they could divide it evenly, the market had dropped. So the house was worth less than what they paid meaning that she paid him less as a result. That house was in Whanganui, and sometime later, her police work meant that she had to move to Wellington. So she rented out her home and purchased a second property to live in with her new partner in Wellington for $200,000. Down the track, when that relationship ended, she bought him out of his portion of that home. Her policing role in Wellington was very niche, and as a result, she rightly earned a lot of allowances and toil, which is time off in lieu. Now this is common in policing and is for workers who have worked above and beyond the contracted hours. In fact, during her time there, she earned so much time off that she was instead paid out about 30 grand because she was never going to be able to take that amount of time off. 
She put that money towards her mortgage, but like Tony, she was also paying into her police super scheme. Eventually, she needed a change in role because working 18-hour days has a bad habit of wearing you out over time, but she knew that if she just dropped to a more of a normal policing role, and therefore a lower salary, she might struggle to make her mortgage payments and live the life she was used to living in Wellington on a single income. So, she rented out her home and she moved to Manawatu, which is, of course, where her path crossed Tony's for the first time. They married within 12 short months of meeting each other, and from that point in our kōrero, he talked about we. Given that I speak to a lot of couples who seem to keep their money separate for fear of breaking up, I was curious to know why they joined their putia so quickly, especially given that they must have both accumulated some wealth by then. In short, he said that it just made sense to do so. As they were married, it all became ours. No more mine versus yours. He said that due to the nature of the policing work that they do, you tend to think about the legal side of marriage more than most. And that comes from being called to enough jobs where people have separated but end up in a huge argument about money and everything turns to custard about who is getting what. Instead of a clean break from the spouse they no longer like, they instead drag out a relationship that they wanted to end. Tony and Karen know from seeing it firsthand via their jobs that the legal position is more or less that things are split down the middle, so better to just go into it with that knowledge. In their minds, it was just easier to manage their money together. But in light of family members cautioning them to protect themselves, they certainly talked it through prior to marriage. And they did the math on each of their financial positions. And their net worths were roughly the same anyway. It was probably a $50,000 difference. So there was little point in a prenup, they thought, as they were both in relatively equal positions. And Tony said that it was just easier running life with their money combined and he just wouldn't know why you wouldn't join together as a team with your life partner. In around 2013, with them both already investing in their superannuation scheme, he, like many Kiwis, opted to buy $10,000 of shares in Mercury Energy, which is a state-owned enterprise that was being sold off by the government. This was also his first foray into investing into something other than his super and housing. As a couple, their careers took them to a new town, so their next move was to sell the Manawatu house for $200,000 and buy a house in Taupo for $475,000. It was a newer build, it was warm, dry and double glazed, which was chalk and cheese from his old house, he said. To do it, they borrowed about $300,000, but they created a mortgage structure that would allow them to pay it off fast. They had a large revolving credit facility where they basically used a credit card to pay for all of their monthly spending, and this card was paid in full once a month, with their entire paycheck put into their revolving credit account, paying down the balance by a large chunk. It's two steps forward, one step back kind of banking. Mortgage debt like this, particularly if you have good incomes, drops by a decent chunk each month before it's slowly added to with spending, before dropping back by another chunk. And if you have discipline, this system works really well. But if you don't, they can be a terrible idea as you will continue to just spend the full loan amount and never actually pay off debt. Now, in a legal move that I don't fully understand, they formed a company and effectively sold the Whanganui and Wellington houses into it, meaning that they received the equity back that they then used to pay off the remainder of their personal mortgage of $300,000. Now that the company that owned the rental properties was carrying that mortgage debt, which was 80% of the value of the properties, this was tax efficient and worth doing, he said, 
the rents then paid down the mortgage and they could offset interest. Now, I'm not going to lie, it doesn't sound simple to me, and I understand that this interest deductibility is being progressively phased out anyway, so this sort of structure might be less relevant now. And anyone who follows my blog knows I make no secret about the fact that I don't follow the legal ins and outs of how to structure a rental property investment because it seems like a complicated way to make money if you ask me. And I know that there's plenty of podcasts out there that follow that sort of thing. Tony was honest about the fact that really when it came to money, he was just making things up as he went along. We all are. And when I was thinking about it as I wrote this up, when he was a young guy and he knew he wanted to be a millionaire one day, he didn't have a system for how to do it. By this point though, he was creating some systems. He had a superannuation fund and housing investments, but the long-term financial plan was still pretty murky. And this is why I was not surprised to learn that just a year after setting up a company to own the two other houses that they now had, they decided to sell one. When they stood back and looked at that Whanganui rental property, they could see that it needed a lot of money spent on it in the coming years. Now their tenants were lovely and they were never an issue, but the house itself had never really gone up in value and managing a property from afar was becoming a problem for them. So what a lot of legal faff to go through to set up companies and sell houses into them, take out new mortgages and pay all the experts to do the paperwork, only to turn around and sell it. Clearly, by doing all of this, they were planning on being rental property owners for the long term. Well, when setting it all up, they both thought that it was a long-term move as well. But when they relocated to Topol, the reality of managing two properties, which were three to five hours away, just became painful with them paying others to maintain their properties or respond to the often frequent requests from their Wellington tenants in particular. When they started looking more deeply into what the Whanganui property needed, well they realised that they had a costly future ahead of them and with house prices staying stable so no capital gains to be had there, the rent wouldn't be enough to cover all the repairs needed plus the mortgage. So in about 2015 they sadly said goodbye to their tenants that they really liked and they sold that house for $175,000. The Wellington house was always easy to rent out, and the house was rising in value, but the tenants there were always on their case, as was their right, by the way, and the property was just too hard for them to manage. So in around 2017, they sold it for $450,000. At various times, they became debt-free, and each time they did, they funneled off their spare money into bank deposits or managed funds that he'd come across letting those balances build. So this is a very house-heavy episode, but the buying and selling of various homes are still worth sharing, I think because it just highlights a couple of things to me. Firstly, it's that independent of each other, I think they bought and sold homes for the right reasons. They lived somewhere and needed somewhere to live, so they purchased a home. And when their relationship status or location changed, most times that house was eventually sold too. And secondly, it shows that When you become an accidental landlord without a strategic long-term plan, it's a blooming hard way to make money. With house prices being on such a steady rise over the last few years, it's easy to forget that house prices don't always go up. When all was said and done, from what I could gather, Tony just didn't like the hassle of owning rental properties. Through policing, he had certainly witnessed that although he and Karen had good tenants, not all tenants respect your house. And how long would it be before their luck ran out? So they were more than happy to see them gone. I meet a lot of people like them. They end up buying rental properties because they think they have to, as a way to build a retirement nest egg. 
but they really don't like the process. So if rental property was not going to be their path to riches, what would it take to get them to retirement with a cash cushion? And how did they work their way around to thinking that retiring early could even be an option? Well, in 2018, they decided that they didn't want to work into old age. Too many of their mates were dying, essentially. Karen's father worked till 65, then a few years into retirement had a bad stroke, meaning a huge loss of function and loss of enjoyment in life before his eventual death 15 years later. And Karen witnessed that and rightly asked the question, what on earth is the point of all of this? A work colleague got cancer and was sadly gone just six short months later. Another colleague in his late 50s developed a condition and was gone just six months later. And they both looked at each other and they thought, what's the point of acquiring wealth that we might not get to enjoy later? Why not enjoy it now? And it is not to say that they were not enjoying life. They are both super active outdoor people with a lot of fun adventures outside of work. It's just that they found working for the police was stressful for them both. And they decided to take 12 months leave without pay, pack up their bikes and travel from the top of Alaska down to Panama City, which is an epic distance and an even more epic adventure, I would imagine. And that was the catalyst for change as they asked themselves, well, why can't we do this all the time? To prepare for the trip, they set a budget of 50 grand, which they saved and set aside. They rented out the Topol house. They packed their belongings into a container that was stored on the property. And off they went, staying away almost a full year, having adventures, bikepacking, taking part in some adventure races, and spending just $42,000 of their money. Now, this adventure into the unknown, it showed them that they could have a lot of fun for not a lot of money. What they also discovered was that once you set your mind to something, you can save up for it quite quickly. They returned to police work in 2019 and quietly began to explore the idea of retiring from paid work within a five-year period. So Tony could get out of frontline policing because it was taking a toll on his mental health, he moved south to Wellington in 2020, right in the middle of our first nationwide lockdown, taking a senior sergeant role with the police, earning about $120,000 a year. But this new role had different pressures and he started thinking his days with the police were numbered, which got him thinking even harder about what comes next. Karen transferred down a few months later, taking on a sergeant role with a slightly lower income, and he pointed out that over the years, as their seniority grew, their incomes have too, and you can easily Google what different police ranks in New Zealand earn if you're interested. When they were making the move to Wellington, it was a very uncertain time due to COVID, of course, and they didn't know whether house prices were going to go up, down, or sideways in value. Initially, they were considering renting, but they decided to buy as they wanted the stability that owning your own home gives you. So they bought a house in Wellington, and now the housing market was on the up. They paid a million dollars for it, which felt ridiculous at the time, he said. But it had plenty of garaging for all the adventure gear that they'd accumulated, and apparently storing your kayak in the kitchen was no longer an option. It had fantastic views and was a 15-minute bike ride to work, and with eight bicycles between them, these two are pretty happy to bike anywhere. During the uncertainty of COVID, they also sold their Topol house for $765,000, which was $290,000 more than they paid for it seven years earlier. He said that a year later, property values in that area started to surge, and holding it and renting it could have seen them net more money, but of course, hindsight is a wonderful thing. And had they done that, they would have taken on an even larger mortgage in Wellington too, don't forget. 
Because of the difference in value between the two houses, they cashed out a managed fund investment that they had been contributing to, and they took on a mortgage again to make up the difference. They then attacked the mortgage from their income to once again become debt-free. Now that the idea of retiring early was on their minds, they then began to aggressively save and invest as much of their combined income as they could into some managed funds that they had, as well as into their superannuation schemes, knowing that once they leave the police, they can access their super, unlike with KiwiSaver. Now speaking of KiwiSaver, around 2018, they finally joined. Prior to this, they had only been in the police super scheme because were under the wrong impression that you could not also have KiwiSaver. If you are in a private scheme, yes, you can still have KiwiSaver, but the government will only make one annual contribution, but it needs to be into a KiwiSaver account. And you'll be eligible for it so long as you have made the $1,042 of either employee or voluntary contributions during that financial year. So all that time, they could have paid into their super, plus put $1,042 into their KiwiSaver scheme to get the annual $521 from the government. It would have been a nice additional nest egg for them, accessible at 65. But as soon as they realised, well, they both opened up growth KiwiSaver funds and for the first year were putting 3% of their incomes into it before dropping it back to $20 a week as a voluntary contribution in order to meet the threshold. And he has recently changed his provider to invest now and his balance is $33,000 while Karen's balance is $23,000. Now, given they earn similar incomes and joined at the same time, why the $10,000 difference in balances? Well, a wee whoopsie there. He had set up a $500 a fortnight payment into his managed fund, only to discover quite some time later that, nope, he was sending that money to his KiwiSaver instead. Oops. As soon as he realised that he was paying into the completely wrong investment, he, of course, fixed his error. But that accounts for the disparity in balances and is a real-world reminder of what higher deposits into your fund do to your balance. Sharesies also entered the scene, and investing in that seemed like a bit of fun to Tony. Now, I always cringe a bit when I hear people looking to have fun investing. He also transferred those Mercury Energy shares, now with the value of $20,000, into the Sharesies platform to make it easier to manage because he kept losing his login details. And he began making automatic fortnightly deposits into the Sharesies account, and in his search for fun, became a frequent investor. But thankfully, he quickly realised that he was more or less just day trading, buying and selling often, far too often, which didn't work out, and he thankfully realised he was heading down the wrong track before losing too much more of his money. Now, I'm pleased that my path to investing, while still a bit hit and miss, it took a more hands-off and methodical approach to Tony. No part of me ever wanted to have fun investing. Seeking fun is inviting risk. I wanted to work out a way to grow my wealth slowly over time and settle into that pattern so I could actually make money. But day trading, particularly by men, was hugely popular for a period of time during COVID. Thankfully, that hype seems to have died down now, but perhaps because all the day traders have run out of money to trade. Tony and Karen were earning good money at work, about $220,000 combined. But because of this five-year timeline to early retirement, they were open to ways to earn more. And this is when the opportunity came up to both go and work in the Solomon Islands for a six-month stint, which ultimately meant, although they didn't realise it at the time, that their final year of working turned out to be the biggest year of earning that they ever had. They rented out their Wellington home so that they could return to it when they were done. 
But then, out of the blue and just before they left, they were approached by a couple who wanted to buy their home. Now, I ummed and ahed about sharing this next bit, but I have because I think it outlines the insanity of the housing market in Aotearoa. When they were first looking to buy their home, there were two offers presented to the sellers. Theirs was $960,000 and the other people's offer was about $990,000. The sellers wanted a million, but the higher bidders just walked away. Tony and Karen accepted the asking price and they bought the house. Just 12 months later, the people who walked away approached Tony and Karen and offered them $1.4 million. Tony and Karen, they didn't need to sell, they didn't want to sell because they wanted to return to it. So they threw caution to the wind and they asked for $1.6 million. Part of this was just to see what would happen, but the other part was that actually they realised that they themselves would then need to rebuy a home in Wellington and clearly the prices had gone up, so they needed the cash to buy again. But their overseas deployment was then delayed, but because they had already rented the home for three months, they moved into a smaller apartment themselves until the sale of their home went through which it did just 16 months after they bought it in the first place. And they stowed their 1.6 million, give or take, into their managed funds. It was housing madness, he said, and I'd have to agree. Their deployment to the Solomons then got delayed again and again, and they decided not to rebuy, but to wait. And while waiting, they just saved their guts out. Finally, in October of 2021, they left. When their deployment was extended from six months to a year, they decided that this was their stepping stone into early retirement and they made the most of the high pay and low outgoings, returning in late 2022 to New Zealand. Now, as far as income goes, their last 12 months before they retired were anomalies. The allowances that go with an overseas posting like that are quite significant. His gross taxable income last year was $177,000 the year before, it was about $120,000. So the additional $67,000 came from additional allowances due to where they were working. Danger money in many ways. Karen was paid slightly less, about $160,000, just because she's of a different rank. So a combined income of about $337,000, which is twenty-eight grand a month before taxes. They had time to do some math while they were away. And with money in superannuation plus the house sale money, they realised that they could retire earlier than their original five-year goal. They now no longer needed to return to Wellington to work, so instead they began to look at the Upper South Island in the Golden Bay area. From their Solomon Island base, they started an online house hunt, and with the help of some good mates on the ground back home, they bought sight unseen by them at least, a home for $1,050,000 with a 1.3 hectare native bush block with it. A rustic, 20-year-old house in a lovely setting. As soon as they realised they would be retiring early, early in their deployment they also purchased a new $80,000 caravan that would be able to take them on adventures in the years ahead. And due to COVID, it took a long time to arrive, only being delivered in early 2023, but that worked out fine for them as it gave them the time to save hard and pay cash for it from their high incomes. And thankfully they already had an appropriate paid-for vehicle to pull it. Now, although they had plenty of putia to buy the house, they had less cash than when they first sold it. The general rule of thumb is that you don't invest the money that you need in the short term, and the short term seems to be anywhere between 5 to 10 years. They had invested their money in managed funds, which are, in part, in a large part, invested in shares. Unfortunately for Tony, buying their home coincided perfectly 
with Russia invading Ukraine and share markets taking a tumble. Because he had his money in a managed fund and their police super, the balance dropped overnight. He had about $2 million invested and it quickly dropped by $200,000 right at the time when he had to take out $1 million to settle the house sale. So a big lesson learned there in an education and why the money should have been in a bank account instead. They just invited far too much risk into their lives and it didn't pay off. They returned home from their deployment in late 2022, settling into their new home and making a few more significant purchases. Since being there, they have set aside $100,000 for home repairs. Now, this figure is not just a shot in the dark either. They have costed out all the repairs that they want to do in the coming months. One of the reasons I will continue with this format for my podcast, with me chatting to a person and then creating an essay, is because I'm just talking to regular Kiwis about their money, and the timeline of when they did what and why is often very muddled. In fact, the feedback I get from most people I've chatted with was, how on earth did you piece all of that together? It is the same for pretty much every person I speak with. So I'm going to jump back a little now and talk about the investments they were working on in the background over the last couple of years too. So stick with me as I begin to layer up where their money is. Throughout probably the last five years, Tony also continued to research better ways to grow wealth, perhaps in a more measured way, and he started to read about ETFs and index funds. However, still in search of investing as entertainment, they just seemed boring to him and you were paying a fee of 0.5% plus the sharesy small transaction fee each time you made a purchase or a sale. Under the mistaken belief that share investing had to be fun and dynamic, and you can only make money if you are actually doing something, he thought he could instead mimic the composition of the fund and do it himself. They were putting money each fortnight in sharesies, and then buying a little slice of each of the top 50 companies in New Zealand each week, replicating a New Zealand Top 50 ETF. Oh my goodness, (laughs) what a labour-intensive way to invest, buying tiny amounts of 50 companies and working how much of each you needed to buy to replicate the index. And I was literally shaking my head as I was writing this up. Plus, I would imagine that in his effort to avoid a tiny fee, he paid over the odds and fees because of the 50 transactions he was doing. And what about the use of his time too? Well, thankfully, Tony's a clever bloke and he realised he was wasting time and money too. So he kept researching, moving instead to the share investment platform InvestNow. Now, despite the convoluted way he was going about it, moving their income into investments regularly, it did add up. And at their peak, he had just under $70,000 invested in 50 plus companies and sharesies. But when sharesies announced a new round of fee increases, he moved his entire investment portfolio over to InvestNow. Now, I remember when those new fees were dropped on investors around Christmas time, and a lot of people were pretty shocked and annoyed about it, and Tony was clearly one of them. But his education clearly continued, and when they moved their money to InvestNow, he didn't replicate his very intensive investing strategy. Instead, he invested their money into ETFs because, in his words, he said, they are more reliable. Well, you don't say. So these days, he has the following investments. He's got the New Zealand Top 50, which he said is about 6% of their portfolio. And he's got the ASX 200, which is about 8% of their portfolio. And also the US 500, which makes up about 19%. They are the main three investments that they hold. He then has two satellite funds, which contain US large growth companies and the Total World Fund. 
that he is about to get rid of, he said, and move the $10,000 he has in them into their three main ETF funds. They also had two balanced ANZ-managed funds, which along with contributions to their retirement funds, they have steadily added to over the years, and at their peak they held 50% of their investments. But because of their higher fees, which are over 1%, they are in the process of moving away from these over time, he said. Plus, 17% of their money is kept in cash, term deposits, and also some bonds. And the bonds are another new thing that they have recently added and have used to provide a jardin for this. This money represents four years of expenses set aside to live off in retirement. Remember how their investment balance dropped from 2 million to 1.8 million almost overnight, right at the time when he had to draw out a million dollars for the house? Well, that taught them a lesson. And now they keep four years of cash in the bank, meaning that in good years they can replenish it from their big pot of investments. But in bad years, they can hold off selling investments that are down and they can survive while they wait for them to recover. Money that they don't need in this 12-month period is invested in term deposits. Plus, they also have money sitting in their police super accounts, which are with Mercer. They are so recently retired that they are still holding it there. What this highlights to me is that it would be easy to see these two cycling past you midweek because they are retired and think that they have made every decision perfectly, but they didn't. Where they find themselves today is because over time their good decisions and luck have fortunately outweighed their poor decisions. There is no perfect journey to FI and they have learned by doing. They know more now than when they were teenagers. And as we chatted, I could see that there were moments along the way when they discovered some new information, a piece of the money puzzle, and sometimes it was not the right information, such as day trading, but other times, such as when they realised that they could have been in KiwiSaver from 2007, they put it to rights. And as you can see, they are managing their money themselves because they cannot see the point or find value in paying someone to do it for them. Now, I can hear the financial advisors out there muttering about this. As he spoke to me, he explained he was trying to have cash on hand for them to spend day to day. They have four years set aside in bank accounts, and when they use up one year's worth, if the share market has been doing well, well, they'll sell another year of spending money from their investments. And if it is a down year for the share markets, well, they can hold off for another year or two and will still have enough money in the bank to pay their bills. So he is trying to manage their risk. Although I think that it is within many of our control just to manage our own money, I think that because they have accumulated such a lot in such a variety of ways, they actually would benefit from spending the probably three dollars to $5,000 it would take to have a fee-only authorised independent financial advisor cast their expert eye over the wealth they have created. Now, I'm particularly sure of this because Tony said himself that he has been working out a plan for themselves, but he is struggling to look long-term as to how to structure their money and also how much he can spend. Now, podcaster Ramit Seti talks about wasting time on $3 questions when they should be focusing on the bigger picture that will move the needle. And when it comes to trying to avoid investment fees by using up valuable time to manually buy investments or putting up with a banking system that's not quite right for you, but the fees are low and you don't want to pay a higher fee, well, I think it's worth taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture. And I didn't mean this podcast episode to be a big push for an authorised financial advisor, but they do have their place, and I think that this is one of them. Because whereas in the past they consistently had a combined annual income of over $200,000 a year, 
with that standout year taking them up into the 300s, now they do not. They receive their last income from paid employment in February of this year, and it's really important that they get it right from here on in. And this is where he is directing his thoughts at the moment, creating a plan that will sustain them throughout the remainder of their lives. And crikey, that is quite the mission. He said he had always been told that you couldn't get wealthy from income alone. You will never get rich working for wages. Instead, you need to use that income to make more money. These days, he no longer agrees with that, and I certainly don't agree with that at all. American Dave Ramsey always says that your greatest wealth building tool is your income, and if you just invest it well, your wealth will grow. Now, over the years, I've witnessed a lot of people leave a government job where they get to take their large superannuation balance with them, unlike KiwiSaver, where it's locked up until age 65. And instead of just reinvesting that money right back into another retirement type of share market investment, they instead buy a business or do some other risky venture to make money, failing to realise that having invested a portion of every single pay they ever received, well, they've already made the money, now they just need to continue to grow it. So as it stands today, Tony and Karen own their own home without debt and have investments to the value of about $1.8 million, not including cash in the bank and money set aside for home repairs. All of their vehicles and adventure toys are owned without debt. They are in a fabulous position. If you were to simply apply the 4% rule to their investments, it would give them an annual income of $70,400 each year. Their police super fund makes up about $900,000 of this $1.8 million. Almost $600,000 comes from the sale of their Wellington house, and it's invested now. Plus a figure not yet talked about was a $300,000 inheritance that was more recently received, sadly from the death of a parent. All the money they've saved over the last few years paid for the house repairs and the caravan. In many ways, they have accumulated their wealth due to being not forced but nudged into the police super scheme luck from a rising housing market, and a large gift from the death of a relative. The investments they have made themselves have been more precarious. Day trading, the house money invested at great risk in a long-term investment. Make no mistake, these two are highly intelligent, and they learn each time, but I think that a qualified professional will be able to teach them how to invest their own time and money over the long term without feeling like a deer in the headlights, worrying about what might go wrong. It is actually only within the last 12 months that they've realised that there is a global community of people who have become financially independent at a young age and are able to stop work altogether and live off their investments. Fire is a new concept to them. He only stumbled upon the happy saver a few short months ago and for the first time heard a ton of stories about what others are doing with their money. And when I asked if he'd read my favourite book, J.L. Collins, A Simple Path to Wealth, it was a no. And had he read my latest favourite, Die With Zero, by Bill Perkins, well that was a no too. But he is in a queue at his local library to read it. I think that for the two of them right now, more information is necessary. There is a lot they could learn straight away from books like those, and from an authorised financial advisor, that will give them a clearer course to take. Now that's not to take anything away from all that they've achieved. It's just to point out that with some refinement, they could be much clearer going forward. He is right that it's difficult to find information for people at their stage. And while he might now understand the concept behind the 4% rule, it is more difficult to work out how to structure investments so the 4% is being sold from the right place. He has been constructing his own spreadsheets and says that in theory, 
he has calculated that based on average returns of, in his case, he said, going by a 10-year historic return, their pre-tax return should be about 6.7%, and he anticipates they will run out of money in their late 90s. From the numbers he gave me, and knowing how compounding works when your money is well invested, I actually don't think that will be the case, and it would be great to see them be given some clear guidance on this. There are many people who have retired at the traditional age of 65 and are sitting on large sums of money, worried about running out. And I'm wondering if, with their current arrangements, these two young, fit and fabulous people won't spend enough and will live their lives more cautiously than they need to because they are worried about running out of money. Also, when I see how they have created their current nest egg, he attributes half of it to the consistent investment of a portion of each pay anywhere between 10 to 20% over the years, into the police super scheme over the course of their careers. That is consistent, steady wealth creation over time. However, the other half comes from the luck of a house sale and the unexpected bonus by way of an inheritance. Now, my uneducated opinion is that some timely information and lessons from a financial expert will mean that they will lean more towards a more steady and sure way of building wealth because booming housing prices and inheritances are an unreliable source of income. And the final thing to say on that, I don't think they realise how wealthy they are. Their current arrangement is that they are paying themselves just $6,500 a month to live their lives. From this income, they anticipate they will save up to pay cash for extra things that they might need, such as a bathroom renovation or a car upgrade. Once again, this is where a more structured financial plan will enable them to probably do those things more easily. They have a high net worth that could cover additional expenses instead of them going without each month in order to save. Now, it was such a treat to talk to Tony so early into his early retirement, as he is really trying to work this stuff out. It was quite a different conversation. Usually when I speak to people who have retired, they have had a number of years preparing for this moment. But Tony said himself that there's still so much to learn. Fortunately, he is interested in this and he is in an intense period of refining their systems and consolidating investments to help them manage their money better. Now, if you've made it this far in the podcast and if you got a bit confused, as I did, hearing about their investing, well, don't get stuck on that. Think instead about where they have come from and where they're going. I think that he is thinking too small, focusing on smaller things when he has a net worth behind him that if he designs the investment and management of that well, well that stands to earn him a hundred times more money than focusing on not paying a transaction charge. And my final question to him was to ask what they do with their time now. Well, the answer was lots. They are getting involved in some conservation work, doing some pest eradication and vegetation management, and despite volunteering to do this, the irony was that they got paid to do it. They have got involved with the mountain biking club and are loving both riding and fixing up tracks. They are new to their house and are therefore doing a lot of work about the place and they see about another six months of work there, so that takes up a bit of time. Plus he is training for multi-sport type events and that takes up a lot of their time, not to mention energy. And they have joined sports clubs and committees. He is even about to learn to sew so he can create curtains for their house. And once he has mastered that, well, he's going to sew all the kits that they need for their bike adventures. And very, very quickly, they have filled up their calendar and already are questioning how on earth they work full time while still doing a lot of the outdoor activities that they enjoy doing. They are living a very full and fulfilling life. And I think that early retirees are full of energy 
and are so good for our communities. Now, as a resident in a new town, he feels uncomfortable saying he is retired. Instead, he tends to say he is having a break. He said that he considers himself to still be working hard. They just don't get paid for it, and it's all on their terms. What a way to live. Now, before I wrap up what was meant to be a short but turned into yet another long episode, I have another quick message from today's sponsor. If you want to supercharge your finances with Pocketsmith, they've got a deal for you. Happy Saver listeners get a whopping 50% off your first two months of Pocketsmith's premium plan. To get your deal, go to pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. That's pocketsmith.com forward slash the happy saver. How do you structure your money to make up for the income you are missing from your PAYE job? This is where Tony is struggling at the moment, setting themselves up for the next 50 years of life. I know that this is common for many people who have made a fortune in real estate, only to sell it and be left with a lot of cash and no idea where to put it, other than in term deposits in their bank. One useful book that is worth mentioning here is Cracking Open the Nest Egg, which is by Kiwi Martin Hawes, as he discusses this in detail. Plus, I'll also keep my eyes open to bring you some podcasts of Kiwis managing their retirement well. Tony and Karen have created a system that works for now, but he said it feels overly manual, not streamlined, and that it is not always going to work for them. He already sees that, he said, so is making alterations. They have plans to head overseas to remote areas for extended periods, and he can't be logging in on dodgy Wi-Fi, shuffling money about then. He has loosely applied the 4% rule to his system, but realises that when he reads up on it, all the case studies are from overseas often from countries that don't offer a universal superannuation payment once you turn 65, because that's obviously going to have a big impact on them when the time comes. As he looks to the years ahead, he realises that nothing stays the same, and he is trying to financially prepare and grow his knowledge as best he can. One thing I really liked about these two is their ability to up sticks and move to where they see opportunities, and the fact that while they might buy a house in every town, and they might hold on to some of them when they move to the next town, ultimately they don't stay stuck with owning all of those houses. Had they done so, they would have had a huge amount of debt, as well as a huge amount of equity in housing, and I honestly think that it would have held them in jobs that they didn't like anymore, while also not enjoying being landlords. But by owning one house outright, plus investing in their superannuation and otherwise setting money aside, it really has enabled them to live quite a different life to many. And what I really took away from chatting at length with Tony is that we all cobble together a system of our own and make it bend to our will, but ultimately getting a bit of qualified advice will help you structure your money to make it last the distance. But the standout is that making regular steady investments into a long-term superannuation investment, such as the police super fund they were in or the KiwiSaver for regular citizens, it has a huge bearing on long-term wealth. Without thinking too hard about it, from deductions from their take-home PAYE jobs, they grew that investment alone to $900,000. In fact, as I was writing this episode up, I had an email come in and amongst other things Kate said, knowing how good compulsory super was in Australia, when we returned home to New Zealand, we jumped straight into KiwiSaver as soon as it launched in 2007. We were absolutely staggered in the early days that some people in New Zealand didn't think it was a good idea. So that should offer a huge amount of hope to all of us who are in a retirement scheme. If you load it up at higher rates than 3% during your working life, as they do in Australia, it will pay you handsomely throughout your retirement. 
Secondly, at certain points, big money can come your way. Often in this country, it is from a house sale, and sometimes it's through the death of someone that you love. It is so very important to use that money well, and by all means have some fun with some of it, but if you pay off debt and invest it well, it will set you up for the rest of your life. And given these two are at the halfway mark, their investments are going to provide them with such an awesome retirement. And finally, thanks so much for slotting me into your very overfull diary, Tony, and for speaking so openly with me about the journey that you've both been on. It was a fascinating insight, and I think it will have a lot of people taking wee tips and ideas to apply to their own life. Whew, so there's another long one. That's all from me this week. And if you want to get in touch, you can, of course, find me at thehappysaver.com. And please do share this episode with your friends. It's still the best way that people can learn about the podcast. And I would love it if you would talk more about money with your own friends and whanau and help me continue to help others be better with money. So until next time, happy saving. <laughs>